Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I am your host, Stephen Pinecker, and I am very honored to have this next guest on. Now, what I'll tell you is I, oh, I, I got to, sometimes uh, my inventory gets a little low when I'm doing uh, interviews and stuff. Uh, and so I was like, I need somebody to fill a particular slot. And I thought, you know, I think Casey Kern might be the ticket. And I thought we could talk about the melee hypothesis. And of course, uh, Casey goes to me and says, well, I already talked about that on Gospel Tangents. I'd, I'd like to talk about something else. And I'm like, okay, what else? He said, the atonement. I'm like, oh, that means I'm going to have to do some reading. Well, that's cool. So I want to tell you, folks, that we're going to have this interesting conversation. It's a unique take on the atonement uh, via uh, using the Book of Mormon. And uh, so just wait for this, folks. I think you're going to be really int intrigued in what Casey has to say. Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, Casey lives in um, Seoul, Korea, and where he's a product manager. He earned a uh, undergraduate degree in information systems from BYU and a business degree from MIT. In 2015, he was involved in the Amateur Cave Expedition in Manchester, New York, where he looked for the Mormon's Cave, which was an exciting episode in uh, Gospel Tangents. In 2017, he edited and published a transcription of the Journal of Jacob Gates, an early convert who lived through the formative years of the Restoration. Uh, KC has developed several data processing tools for scripture study and analysis, including the Book of Mormon Online, Scripture Guide, and the Isaiah Explorer. He takes an interest in the Book of Mormon studies and as a graduate student presented a paper on the Book of Mormon's articulation of atonement theology at the 2013 Conference of the Society for Mormon Philosophy and Theology. So, you know, there's a lot of different views of the atonement and that some are unique to Mormonism. Uh, some of the Mormon views are also very similar to conventional Christianity. Um, but what you did was you took something that Ezra Taft Benson said, which he said that the most complete explanation of the atonement is within the pages of the Book of Mormon. And using that kind of as a guide, um, thinking like, well, what is in the Book of Mormon? And what is its view of the atonement? You found some very interesting things. What, what made you decide to kind of uncover this uh, little thing in the Book of Mormon? Yeah, so if, if I were to back up and kind of explain sure. where, where kind of this train of thought uh, originated from, um, I, I served a mission and, uh, you know, taught the, the missionary lessons, which, of course, um, includes a teachings about the atonement. And um, the, you know, as in teaching, I was often trying to understand the why behind, behind things. And uh, especially if there, if there were inquisitive investigators, they would ask and follow up and, and push and, and probe. And, uh, you know, I, I felt some responsibility to, to try to uh, understand that. So, you know, the, the typical language that we use for, uh, for the concept of the atonement is, is things like, uh, like Jesus died for our sins. And, that, and that's pretty universal, even in, in, in Christianity. I think a, a little more um, Mormon-specific articulation is uh, Jesus paid the price for our sins. And, uh, and that, um, that was often you know, just the, the, the go-to line to explain, it's like, well, you know, we have committed sins and this alienates us from, from God. We have spiritual death and somehow there's a price that needs to be paid in order to, to fill this gap. And that's what Jesus did through his, through his sacrifice. 
Um, and and so you know, I really wanted to unpack that that concept and and particularly find like where does this concept come from in, in the scriptures, and and that's where I I kind of went uh, into into the scriptures, trying to you know first doing word searches and things like that, and and try to find the concept of of paying the price uh, for sins, and conceptually there is there is material there, particularly when you get into Old Testament stuff related to, to sacrifice and uh, um, sacrificial lambs or even uh, you know, scapegoats or the idea of, of you know, sacrificing one, one thing in, in order to, uh, to redeem something else. Um, but uh, I couldn't find the phrase uh, paying the price for sins. I could find things like you are bought with a price, which, which shows up in, uh, in, in Paul's writings, um, you know, and redemption through his, through his blood and, and things like that, but could not find scriptural justification for, for paying the price for sins. So, so then, you know, I said, well, what, what is, if, if the scriptures don't say anything about Jesus paying the price for sins, then what is between Christ and sins? And, and that's where uh, turning to the Book of Mormon actually yielded something uh, which I, I found to be significant and a little bit unexpected. And, and the term there that the Book of Mormon uses is Jesus takes upon himself sins, which, which is different than, than uh, simply paying a price. And, and so following that line of thought that, okay, now I need to understand what does take upon sins mean in the context of, of the atonement and what are the implications? And, and that's what kind of opened the door for, uh, for the... Uh, um, I guess the the model of, of the atonement that I believe the the Book of Mormon sets forth. Now, my friend, our mutual friend Christopher Thomas, uh, uh, cited that in his book. Um, he found it to be a very intriguing premise. As a matter of fact, I was just zooming with him the other day, and we uh, he took out the copy of the book, and we he read to me the citation and everything like that. Um, I think what you are doing is very fascinating because. Uh, you're finding this idea of, of something different. And one of the things that you call this is called nominal appropriation. That is the title of what you are calling it. So maybe compare and contrast some of the other views of the atonement and then what your nominal appropriation, what, what differentiates it from maybe some of the other views? Yeah, sure. So, you know, in looking through the, the various atonement theories that exist in, in general uh, Christianity, um, you have you have things like um, you know, Christus Victor, where, where Christ overcomes uh, the the powers of, of darkness. Uh, you have uh, you know, substitution or, or satisfaction. Um, you know a, a variety of of different um, models that are out there, and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. There's in, in some cases they're they're just trying to to zero in on a particular aspect or or trying to make sense of a a particular um, portion of 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 the the theology uh, involved, and so so um, nominal appropriation is the uh, is what I've termed um, the concept that that I feel I identified in the Book of Mormon, and you know I, I was just looking for a um, a pithy simple way to encapsulate the uh, the the concept, and and basically nominal just means name. And then appropriation is 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 to take upon. And so I was just mentioning that that Jesus uh, takes upon himself uh, sins. Uh, you know what I what I discovered in the Book of Mormon is that 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 phrase it's a it's a you know a, it can be identified very precisely 
um, from a grammatical point of view, the, the take upon. Um, the other context that that is used in, in the Book of Mormon, is, is to take upon the name of Christ. So, so you know, you, you do a search for, for the word take upon, you're going to have these two categories. On one side, there's going to be Christ taking upon himself sins, and, and it, it gets it gets more profound than that. Uh, um, but just as, as a surface level, let's 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 keep it there. Then on the other side, we have um, humanity that is charged with taking upon themselves uh, the name of Christ, and and the uh, the idea there is that these two these two things uh, are kind of a yin and a yang in in the in the atonement uh, process that they uh, one of them's you know coming down from above the other one is going up from from below and and they they meet in a in a unified in a unified way so um the the biggest contrast i i would say is uh i think it's compatible with many other atonement theories in some in most cases it doesn't displace uh it doesn't displace anything um what it does is it identifies the uh, the the interface the the hook the 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 plug and the socket of of an atonement um, model of how is it that that uh, in in what manner do Christ and humanity um, meet and the name of Christ being exchanged and then the uh, the the sins and then the the broader view of that is not just sins but also uh, the the likeness of man um, sins I mean uh, sickness and affliction and 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 death are things that that Christ takes upon himself um, as as described in the Book of Mormon and um, and that then creates the the union that then can be referred to wholly as Christ and and then uh, becomes a beneficiary of of Christ's uh, sacrifice um, I think that the one thing that it does displace would be the uh, the substitution theory I think where you know there there's some models of of the atonement or you know, analogies made. There's a story of you know he took my licking for me or something like that. It's these school kids that are you know they make these rules and they say here are the penalties for the rules and then there's this poor scrawny kid who then ends up breaking the rules because he's poor or something like that and nobody can bear the fact that he's going to get whipped or something like that. So one of the bigger kids in the class stands uh, you know takes his place and and takes takes the the whipping uh, for him and you know i think for anybody for any reasonable uh mind that, that there's a lot of problems uh with that and you know expanding that into a well you know why does why does god have to have to kill his son in order to forgive that why can't he just why can't he just forgive i, I think it kind of sets that that concept aside it's like we don't have to go down that that path what nominal appropriation does is it um it's more like a, a merger or even, you know, the, um, the marriage analog analogy of, of, you know, the bridegroom and the chosen and Christ and the church and things like that. Um, it indicates that through a covenant relationship, um, the, you know, two individuals uh, or even a, a, a body of, of people then can be um, treated as a, as a single unit. Um, in the way that uh, you know a, a, a lawyer might might represent an entire uh, corporation, or um, you know uh, spouses can can represent each other. But in that case, it's really not substitution. It's like you are the you are the same the same unit, um, and uh, and then 
you know, you have shared assets and liabilities. And uh, so, I, yeah, I, I think the, um, it does attempt, or at least in, in my view, uh, is, um, is successful in, in displacing satisfaction. I mean, a substitution theory and be like, this isn't, this isn't substitution. This is, uh, it's not one for the other. It's, it's the unity. And then, then the, uh, the, the presentation of, of the, the two parties as a single whole. You know, you, and I was actually going to bring that up because one of the things I thought was really interesting was how you mentioned in the marriage ceremony, the church is the bride, of course, and, and in, in, within the context of a marriage ceremony, the bride takes on the name of, of the husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, um, receiving names as, as part of, uh, you know, uh, covenants and, and things like that is, is something that has, uh, you know, a biblical uh, precedent. And yeah, I think that that concept. So, you know, as I was uncovering this, there were just a lot of things that were clicking, just like, okay, I, I think this, this makes sense in, in the broader context of, of what we see going on elsewhere uh, in scripture. Hmm. Yeah. So um, I think that, you know, it's, it's really interesting because you're in one sense um, you're taking upon the name, but also like an instance, like we had talked about, you're taking upon the image Christ or God, takes upon the image of man, you know, and it's so interesting because obviously within an Old Testament context, God, an image bearer, you know, or, or having a God even being an image is, is kind of taboo. Um, and so you have this radical concept of the, uh, of God himself taking upon an image, but just talk, maybe talk about the implications of that. Yeah. You know, and, and yeah, you, you mentioned kind of the, the Old Testament and the, uh, the image and the idolatry, uh, uh portion there's um so so if i can just mention a few uh, publications that i think have been uh, influential uh, in in this regard so uh, carmen imes is a is a christian um scholar who has dedicated much of her research to um the concept of of israel bearing yahweh's name uh, to the nations and that and that goes all the way back to the, the ten commandments which of course starts out with a don't have any graven images um, but then also has don't take the name of God in vain. And, you know, I, I think uh, modern interpretations of that kind of uh, re reduce it to, um, to something very different than what the original intent was. But um, what we find is, is that that commandment implies that, uh, that Israel was charged with bearing Yahweh's name, um, you know, and, and go forth uh, out of Egypt with as bearers of 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 the name and um and also the um you know uh another publication that's been influential is uh is uh, mike heiser's um work i don't know if, if you're uh familiar with with him but he, he makes the case that um you know the image that god creates is 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 humans that that humans are uh, created to be to be images of God, and um, and then ultimately Christ becoming uh, an incarnate human follows that that pattern of um, God actually reveals Himself through creation, and and that's uh, by by Himself take by by Himself taking upon Himself the image of man, and that and that's a, a specific phrase from from the Book of Mormon. Of, of Jesus taking upon himself the uh, the image of man, and you, and you have a reciprocal uh, on that in the Book of Mormon as well, because 
uh, Alma teaches um, his church that, uh, or, you know, asks them, have you received the image of Christ in your countenance? So, so, you know, what I was finding was that every time that there's this, um, that there's this God taking upon himself humanity, you have this corresponding humanity taking upon themselves some form of, of divine identity, generally in the form of, of the name. Um, but it, it expands broader than that uh, because, you know, Nephi identifies uh, baptism as, as the means by which one takes upon themselves the, the name of Christ, which of course has broader implications into uh, a covenant and, and being born again. And, uh, and yeah, and, and it gets, it, it goes from there. In some places it's, it's baptism and in other places, it's just about taking upon the name as well. Correct. Right. That, that, that's right. Um, it's not, yeah. Every, every time that um, I, I think specifically in, in King Benjamin's um, uh, case, there's no mention of, of bat, baptism at that point. Um, now, I mean, there's also an indication that there's some redaction going on and maybe we don't have the, the full story, but, but yeah, you do have a, a taking upon the name um, event uh, with, with King Benjamin's people that does not uh, explicitly uh, mention baptism. In fact, then, I, I've, yeah, I've, I've got, uh, you know, I kind of collected the, the evidence of, of, you know, where in the Book of Mormon is this, is this uh, uh, happening? Um, I, I wondered if I, if I could just take a little time to walk through that. Welcome for some, uh, for some commentary uh, along the way, or did I just cut you off? Did, did you no, have something no, to add there? Good. Okay. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of instances in, in them. I've, I've kind of grouped, let me pull this up here. I've kind of, kind of grouped them um, into, into some of the, the more uh, compelling um, expositions. In, in each case, you have on one side, uh, Christ assuming something human, whether that's, ident whether that's identity or, or attributes or likeness. And then on the other, on the other hand, you have mankind assuming uh, something divine. But again, it's either identity, it's attributes, or it's, it's likeness. Um, and so, you know, the, the yin and the yang concept of, of this, this duality uh, fusing into, into a single unit is, is pervasive. And, and I got to say that, you know, almost virtually every single discursive segment of the Book of Mormon includes this concept in, in one form or another. Um, and so I, I'll, I'll kind of walk through that, um, walk, walk through that now. Um, and, and again, please, uh, you know, respond or, or, uh, or, or pause me, you know, whenever you have a, a thought or an observation that you'd like to, to bring up, but uh, I'll just kind of plow through this right now. So the, the first time that we really encounter this is, uh, is in the writings of Nephi in, in the small plates. Um, and it's kind of bookended that we, you know, Nephi's uh, prophetic ministry really begins with, with his vision. Uh, in which includes a vision of of the incarnation. You have you he sees Mary um, holding uh, Jesus in in her arms, and you know the angel says, "Look and behold the condescension of God." You know, pretty. Um, there, there's no this one can't be identified grammatically. There's no take upon or anything, but you know an obvious reference to the uh, incarnation here. And then you know at the end of the small plates. Uh, as he's as he's kind of bringing his message to a climax, um, Nephi says, uh, "Follow the Son with full purpose of heart, and be willing to take upon you the name of Christ by baptism." And this is where we have the you know, baptism being explained as as the means of 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 doing that. 
So um, you know, that one's not not super um, explicit in terms of identifying you know the the grammar or anything, but um, but that kind of sets this the stage. The next time that we encounter this is uh, is King Benjamin uh, in in Zarahemla, where he is talking about what the angel uh, explained to him about about again the coming of the coming of Christ and Christ assuming human attributes. It says the Lord omnipotent shall come down from heaven. He shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay, and uh, he he will bleed from every pore uh, for the wickedness and the abominations of his people. That's in in Mosiah chapter three. Now, at the end of, towards the end of his, of his speech, where, where this all leads in, in uh, Mosiah 5, he, he then brings it to, there is no other name uh, whereby salvation cometh, therefore take upon you the name of Christ. And, and speaking about somebody that has taken upon themselves the name of Christ, he shall know the name by which he is called, for he shall be called by the name of Christ. And because of the covenant which ye have made, he shall be called the children of Christ. So, so that, that actually introduces a, a new concept of, of becoming children of Christ and uh, as a consequence of receiving the name of Christ. And, and you know, children are, are named after their, their parents. So, you know, we have something there. Go, go ahead. So just what are the implications of taking upon the name of Christ before Christ has come to the earth um, in, an, in what we, 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 we evangelicals would say in an Old Testament setting? Maybe just speak to that briefly. Yeah, you know that that's that's a little tougher to parse, and I, I think that's a that's an issue that um, you know that the Book of Mormon as a whole uh, kind of has to has to grapple with. And in some in in some cases, you know, it's it's kind of self aware that you know we knew of Christ before His coming, and you know we kept the law of Moses, but you know we 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 really were um, uh, pre Christian Christians. Uh, and you know, I I I don't know if the the idea of you know, taking upon the, the name of Christ, you know, this is all translation stuff. So what, what would they actually have thought of? What word would they, would they actually uh, be using? I think that, that you have to look a little bit broader um, in terms of, you know, the, the word kind of in the, in the John sense, the, the logos, um, that, that the word is, uh, is Christ himself uh, in, a, in the abstract or, or even, you know, a, 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 if you're going to put into the context of John one, a pre-mortal, um, a pre-mortal, uh, logos, a, a pre-mortal Christ. And, um, you know, you can't take this too literally because these people weren't literally, um, changing their names. And, you know, now, now we're all just going to be called Christ and, you know, oh, hello, like, you know, we're all, we're all going to refer to each other as, as the same name. There's definitely something more abstract, um, going on here. And you know, I'm I'm reminded of um, uh, one of the the most uh, interesting and, and enjoyable um, theology books that I've read recently was uh, was Richard Rohr's The Universal Christ. Uh, and, and in that one, he he takes a, a very broad and expansive view of of Christ. Basically, means reality itself in its true form. Um, that you know you, you you erase the the shackles of of deception and of um, and of delusion and and you know pure reality is is what is what Christ uh, is and the and the other thing that he he brings up there is the catchphrase fervor his book is God loves things by becoming them and and I think that that's very uh, germane to the idea of the incarnation but then also um, you know it's not only Christ becoming human 
uh, and, and entering creation, but then also distributing his identity to all those who will receive it. And, and, and having that be, um, you know, the means by which uh, God expands his, his kingdom through, uh, through these um, voluntary agents. So I, I don't know if that if that answers the 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 question of you know how does this fit, fit in the Old Testament concept, but I think you know you can zoom out and get into you know uh, all the way to the most abstract and, and mythic levels, and and you still have substance to to work with here. Hmm. Excellent point. Well, keep um, going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll get to this uh, later, but you know the idea of being called children of Christ, uh, which is I, I think yeah, it's it's explicit in in the Book of Mormon. You can't you can't you can't get away from it, but I think that does introduce some discomfort because like, aren't we children of God, the father and, and the implications of this model of atonement um, actually come through in trying to, un to make sense of, of the Trinity uh, and, and the Godhead and, and the nature of God. And I think the models that are created in this atonement model then can be um, extrapolated onto, uh, onto, um, you know, father and son and, and, and spirit type, um, uh, relationships and understanding and, and we can get to that later but uh, i just want to seed that right now the idea of becoming children of christ is associated with with taking upon uh, his name so uh just a few chapters later we um we see this concept again with uh abinadi and alma and this is in um uh, so first abinadi his heresy was was that he taught that christ was going to uh, come to earth and take upon him the image of man. And, and that's where this language shows up. This is in Mosiah 7, 27. Um, uh, Abinadi uh, said that Christ should take upon him the image of man and that God should come down among the children of men and take upon him flesh and blood. And, and then, then he also quotes Isaiah and he says, he was wounded for our transgressions. And, and you have some atonement language in there as well. Um, and then, so Alma was the one listening to that. And you know, there's the, the record is is incomplete in terms of you know what all what else did Abinadi teach and, and things like that. But what we get from Alma is is a response to Abinadi's uh, words, and in in Mosiah 18, which is you know kind of the, the side side story, but still a response to Abinadi's um, teachings. Uh, he he brings him to the waters of Mormon. He says, "What have you against being baptized?" And he says, "In the name of the Lord," um, and. Uh, and then he receives a, a revelation where, where the Lord says, blessed are this people who are willing to bear my name for in my name, they shall be called and they are mine. So, so you have this, you know, both tying it to baptism and also, uh, also that this, this people are, are taking upon themselves the, the name of Christ and being, and being called, uh, called by his name. Um, so then Alma goes on, this is the, um, let, let's see, you know, I guess this would be the uh, uh, Alma's son, Al, uh, Alma the, the younger then. Uh, he goes on a, he becomes um, chief, uh, chief uh, high priest and then goes uh, on a preaching circuit. And these two concepts show up again to the church. Um, let's see, in, in Alma 7, I think he's speaking to the church in, in Gideon. And, and he, he talks about the, the incarnation there. He says, Christ shall be born of Mary. And then this is where you have a lot of the take upon language. He says, he takes upon himself the pains and the sickness. He will take upon him death and he will take upon them their infirmities. I think it's interesting that it goes all the way to death because if you, 
because uh, now it starts getting into, you know, rolling things back all the way to, you know, Garden of Eden uh, theology and, and uh, you know, what is it that the, that the redemption of, of Christ was intended to, to uh, reverse? And, and so, you know, death, uh, obviously the counterpart to that is going to be resurrection, which is, which is something that, uh, that is going to be offered to, to humanity. Um, and then Amos also says, the son of God suffereth according to the flesh that he may take upon him the name, the, uh, the sins of his people. So the take upon the sins there shows up, uh, shows up again. And then to, to the church in Zarahemla, this is where the, the take upon the name uh, teachings come again. The good shepherd doth call you in his own name doth he call you, which is the name of Christ. And then have ye received his image in your countenance? So not only do you have the uh, now you're, you're called by the name. And when Jesus calls you, he, he calls you via his own name, but then you also have the, uh, it's not, you're not just receiving his name. The, the effect of this is you're receiving his image in, in your countenance, which then is a very interesting parallel to the Christ taking upon himself, the, the image of man as, as Abinadi had, uh, had taught. Um, and so th then this, this shows up, uh, again, when, um, when Amulek, Alma meets Amulek and goes to, to Ammonihah and, uh, and Alma 1140, he, he's teaching of Christ. And, you know, this is all in a single verse. He says, he shall come into the world to redeem the, his people. He shall take upon him their transgressions of those who believe, um, those who believe on his name. Uh, and they are they that have, that have eternal life. So you have the take upon transgressions right next to, um, to the, the effect of his name. Um, let me let me cruise through the the rest here, but uh, you know in in Alma thirty four they're talking to the 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 Zoramites. Um, here you have Christ will take upon him the transgressions of his people, and then uh, he says, "Contend no more against the Holy Ghost, but receive it and take upon you the name of Christ." That's all in Alma thirty four, and then Samuel the Lamanite shows up later, um, and and he says he Samuel's message was. Christ is coming, uh, you know, and the, the clock is, the clock is ticking and it's like five more years and the son of, and then cometh the son of God, um, anticipating the incarnation there. And then he says, and if you believe on his name, again, the name thing, uh, you know, repent through his merits and as many as believed end up going to Nephi and be baptized. So the, you know, that was not quite as precise from a language pers perspective, but, but all the, all the concepts are there. And then when Jesus himself shows up, he, he introduces himself in, in 3 Nephi 11 and says, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world, right? So you have acknowledging his own incarnation. And then he says, I have drunken out of that bitter cup, which the father hath given me and glorified the father in taking upon me the sins of the world. So, so you know, and, and, and this was one of the scriptures that, that I came across in trying to find the paid the price. And in fact, you know, at first I'm, I'm, you know, I would circle it I'm like, oh, well, you know, this is where he's saying he paid the price. I was, and then I look at it, at it more closely and it's like, mm, it says, and taking upon me the, the sins of the world. But then the very next thing that, that Jesus teaches is, is, you know, be baptized uh, in, in my name. Uh, again, the, the name. And then, then later when, when Jesus uh, shows up to his disciples uh, in 35, 27, he stands in their midst, you know, again, his, in a corporal form. Um, he's resurrected at this point, but that's still a, a testament to, um, to, to the incarnation. And then he says, you know, they're asking about what do we name the church and stuff. He's just like, well, don't you, haven't you read the scriptures? You, you've got to take upon yourself the name of Christ and whoso taketh upon, upon himself my name and endureth to the end, 
uh, shall be saved. And then, you know, even to the brother of Jared, um, brother of Jared has this vision where he encounters the, the premortal Christ and he's not incarnate yet. But, but Jesus says, uh, because of thy faith, thou hast seen that I shall take upon myself flesh and blood. And then, um, you know, just a few verses later, uh, he says, um, in me, all mankind shall have life that eternally they who, who shall believe on my name, they become my sons and my daughters. So you hear that you have that children of Christ aspect tied, tied to the name. Then, then the last one goes all the way to uh, uh, the book of Moroni. And it's the sacrament prayer that, that uh, members of the church are incredibly familiar with here every, every week uh, where, you know, the bread is, is blessed to be sanctified uh, in remembrance of the body of, of, of God's son. And that is, uh, you know, a, again, an emblem of, of the corporal uh, incarnate God. And then, you know, the, the, the charge there is witness unto thee that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy son. Um, you know, the, the charge of taking upon the name of Christ is, is encoded into the, into Latter-day Saint liturgy and, um, and, you know, is, is, um, from what I see is the yin that is asking you what is, what is the yang here? And, um, so, you know, I think that that's, there are other instances of this, but, you know, in all cases, it's, you have Christ who's assuming himself and assuming the image of, of, of humanity, the image of man. He takes upon himself anguish for the people. He takes upon himself pain, afflictions, infirmity, sins, transgressions, and ultimately death. And each of those has an analog on, on the, uh, on the humanity front where, where um, mankind assumes divine ident identity first through the name. Uh, you become known by the name of Christ. And then, uh, you know, the image of God is engraven upon countenance, illuminated by the light of the everlasting word. Um, you know, things are restored to their proper frame. Uh, you know, guiltlessness is, is, um, is uh, received as, as a consequence of, of uh, forgiveness. And then resurrection and, and eternal life are then the analog to uh, to death there, and and the effect of that is then becoming um, becoming a single unit with with Christ, which then he refers to as my people, as you know my estate. And so when you know the judgment day comes, it's not hey you know let me let me put you in front of the the bar here. It's like we're going on this together, and we're all known by the name of Christ. So one of the things that's so important within atonement theology and in Mormonism in particular is uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. That's kind of where also what happened at the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah, so the, uh, that that's a, a tricky question. I mean, one of one of the things that I I did uh, um, you know come to understand here is that is that the uh, the the death you know which of course occurred on, on the cross that really was the the, the pivot point um, of of um, you know having uh, the, the 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 polarity. Uh, switch, so to speak, in, in terms of um, of both the, the journey of, of Christ in his, you know, uh, Joseph Campbell's hero, hero journey. Mm -hmm. the, the the cross really was the, you know, it's it's the the death. The, the dying God myth shows up in, in other places, and the the death is is significant because uh, you know a seed needs to be planted in in order for, for it to to grow. But you know, the Garden of Gethsemane has been um, has been emphasized. Um, I think more so in in uh, in LDS theology than than by by mainline uh, Christianity, but um, 
what I what I think happened there is well, what, one you have I think in, in Luke it talks about um, that that you know the time has come for the powers of darkness uh, that that this is um, I'll have to, to look up the, the the reference for for that but you have this the sense of of that that the world's um, evil and and fallenness was kind of uh, gathering like a storm around around Jesus at at that moment or at that at that time and and that um, you know during the intercessory prayer um, that there was some take that the taking upon of of sins there occurred um, in in some form and I I don't really have a, a answer for mechanism or you know metaphysics of of that but. But that that was a, a pivotal moment in, um, in, in basically assuming the, the guilt, and you know, just from a narrative perspective, I, I think that makes sense because that what happened immediately after it was his his betrayal and his arrest uh, occurred right at, at the garden in the garden, right, and then you know his trial and um, and then the uh, the flogging and and then the crucifixion happened immediately after. So, you know, in order for, for any sinners to be beneficiaries of, of that, again, not from a, a substitutionary uh, perspective, but from, a, you know, who is included in, in Christ represented th through that, in basically uh, in, that, in, that, uh, uh, in that experience, the, the assumption of sin must have happened before that for it to, to have uh, taken effect. So, you know, whether that's, uh, that's, you know, the suffering for sins and bleeding for, for every poor, you know, whether things were redeemed at the garden or then born at the garden and then redeemed on, on the cross, um, I, I don't really have the, the means to pick all of that apart. Um, but I, I do believe that, yes, yeah, something did happen significant there related to, to taking upon the sins of, of, uh, of the world. You know, one of the things that differentiates um... Uh, the atonement theology within the LDS perspective is that, uh, you know, this, this Jesus bleeding from every pore in the garden is very important, but I just wondered, maybe we, you don't really get into the shedding of blood too much in your paper, but, you know, I kind of look at, when you look at the story of, G, of the blood, that's an internal, and then mm -hmm. the, the shed blood of Christ as he is being tortured and then hung up on the cross, that's an external shedding. Maybe speak to maybe how, because that, that's like one of the big things is almost like the, the you, know, you understand the implications, how internal bleeding, something that could be something internal coming from him, but then the, the actual, the cause of the bleeding at the, as, as Christ is being tortured and hung on the cross. Is there, what are the implications you see, I think, flush Ooh. that out a bit? Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm hearing you say that, uh, that bleeding from every pore in the garden, like the, the, the cause of that is is internal or, yeah. or well, I, I, opposed, right i mean that's how i would to, interpret it. To yeah. being interpreted yeah. yeah um you know I, I i don't really have an answer for what was going on there how is it that a sin was being transferred or, or downloaded or or things like that and i um i don't think there are i don't really I haven't come across any very satisfying uh, answers uh related to that i mean the the, the closest i i can I can come to is you have the idea of, of the light of Christ, um, which is kind of this this substance that that permeates all of existence and animates all all living things and is responsible for uh, you know conscience and 
uh, and, and consciousness to, to some extent. Um, and uh, I mean, the, the, I don't know if this is going to get to the answer of, of, of the internal external blood thing, but the, um, you have, you know, in the Doctrine and Covenants, the, the light of Christ is first referred to as the light of truth. Uh, and which you know it fills the immensity of space and everything like that, um, which would which would in, in imply that it is inside of all of us uh, and, and you know as 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 people as living entities. And what I think may may have happened is you know in the Garden of Gethsemane that there was some sort of interface that Christ interfaced with this light of truth, which then took upon itself the name of Christ itself. Uh, that, that then it became known as 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 the light of Christ and Christ then. You know, I, that um, and I'm I'm getting into into you know areas I, I don't have a lot of uh, expertise or or you know substance to work with here. Well, but um, it, yeah. one of the things I find you know I think within Eastern Orthodoxy is a little bit of this as well. Where um, so the Garden of Gethsemane it could be a type of Garden of Eden, and paradise within I know in some I know some Eastern Orthodox uh, and some theology is that paradise is the Garden of Eden. Okay. And so, um, so I'm just wondering if there's something like, because something happened at the garden of Gethsemane, it's has something to do relationally with something that happened at the garden of Eden. Hmm. Well, you know, the, the, I guess garden of Eden was, um, was where was where the, the separation between God and humanity occurred. And, you know, if, if at Gethsemane, if, if that's where, where the things were, were reunited, I guess you could you could see them as as uh, as as portions there as portions of of you know of a single whole there, you know I, I would say I, I'll have to, to look more into that um, you know Gethsemane as or no do you say Orthodox is that Paradise is yeah yeah is I've I've, I've read some readings years ago how within uh, there's a concept that Paradise is the Garden of Eden. Well, you know I I would say that that. The idea of Zion and the, the the new heaven and the new earth and and things like that are are you know on the same level as as Eden as as the nexus of of heaven and earth. Um, you know, I I'm, I'm not I I don't really have a, an answer as far as how that would tie in necessarily with sure. with Gethsemane or even with uh, with this you know exchange of name and identity. Yeah. Uh, thing. Yeah. No, I just find that well, and then you know. I, I'm glad that you talked talk about the cross because that's as, as an evangelical, you know, that's where we think is like the most important thing is that what happened at the cross. Now you, you actually do allude, alluded to that earlier, that that is actually an important thing that happened and that that's, I mean, that's the atonement. I mean, that's part of the whole atonement process is the actual, I mean, obviously he's representative of being sacrificed. Now, obviously your nominal appropriation is kind of taking a different twist on it. So how does that address what happened at the cross? Yeah, so uh, you know the, the the first thing that that comes to mind in in dealing with that is uh, and and this was an insight that I that I got from from Richard Rohr in in terms of understanding death and and the cross uh, a little a little more uh, meaningfully because I, I think a, a lot of you know Latter Day Saints may say oh well we just don't like to emphasize you know death it's kind of a sad story we like to talk about the resurrection and the living Christ and and things like that and you know uh, from a um, you know, polite discourse uh, perspective. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but the, what, what Richard Bohr brought up that I really hadn't considered uh, until until he did was that um, you know the, the idea of, of rebirth and of of regeneration and of 
uh, and and this ties into taking upon the name of Christ and and you know, baptism and and re- all of this rebirth motif uh, is dependent on uh, on a death, right? You you can't be reborn without having your previous life end, and 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 what he said and and what what Richard Rohr brings up is that you know by contemplating the the cross and and the death of of christ when 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 jesus says come follow me you know you have the example of of thomas who's you know known as the doubting thomas but but when they're when they're going to go see um when they're going to go back to uh to to judea and and jesus is is you know likely not going to come back alive uh you know thomas is the one that says well um let's let's go with him even unto death and and so you know the call to follow christ um, I think we want to see it as like, well, Christ is just going to take us right up to heaven. Um, and Christ is going to take us into death. And, and, and that's, the, that's one, the path that he trod. And with all this language of you must be born again, you must, you know, you must be baptized. What is baptism if not uh, a symbolic march into the grave, right? Uh, so, you know, I, I think by, by ignoring the, the cross, um, we really risk missing the the idea of of contemplating um the death that has to occur before the rebirth and i think that's significant because you 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 can choose to go into death that that is a, a product of of your of your agency i don't think you can choose to be rebor- to be reborn you can't you can't choose to 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 ascend that is something that that happens uh at that that happens spontaneously or or uh in some cases unexpectedly after after a death and so you know by by taking upon you the the name of of christ you're assuming his likeness his identity but also you are receiving the charge to follow him uh and and the path that he trod is not a a one-stop uh train to 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 glory it's it's a it's a path through to to hell and death um at, at which point um you know the the spirit can breathe new life uh, and and produce the the resurrection that that then, uh, Christ embodied. Um, you know, and I think I think that that's really uh, uh, that's very very profound and and that that's incredibly applicable. I mean, the, what does it mean to die? Like we're not actually talking about suicide here, but we're talking about you know ego loss and of of you know submitting your will if that's if that means caring caring for others or doing things that you'd rather not do because it's the right thing. Um, all of all of those aspects, in some way or, or another, are 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 letting go of what is it that you're trying to to keep alive, and and when those things uh, die, I I think to some extent that that is the the nuts and bolts in in lived experience of what does it mean to take upon you the name of Christ. Uh, it involves being willing to die, and I think that that's explicitly. Um, ritualized in in baptism, it's it's show me and and you know even with with baptism, uh, you know the word willingness is shows up a lot. Willing to take upon uh, upon the name of of Christ, but also you know willing to uh, to be baptized, and all of that is you know from from a, a a mythic point of view is you are in the hero's journey, and if you wanna if you want your your happy homecoming, um, you've you've got to you've got to go through you know you, Luke Skywalker needs to needs to get uh defeated by vader before he can have his uh his his happy homecoming and that's um 
uh, I, I think these concepts are kind of baked in into this, and and by by having the the, the yin and the yang of you know the Christ taking upon himself humanity, he's both showing the way, but then also giving a charge um, to to this is the life that you need to lead as a disciple, and it involves you being willing to die, and uh, you know that that's um, regardless of of anyone's belief uh, in terms of you know literalness of of any uh, religious aspect. I think those are uh, relevant concepts just in terms of, you know, the human experience. Uh, and I, I think the, the theology here has a lot to offer in terms of making sense of that. You know, one of the things that stuck out when I read your paper, as well as in this conversation that we've had with each other, is the refer continuous references to the yin and the yang. Now, I find it interesting that you served your mission in Korea. And of course, if you look at the flag of the nation that you reside in, uh, the, the, the yin and yang uh, is part of, is integrated into the flag. Um, so was this Eastern influence? Like, did you, were you exposed to it then? And that it kind of influenced your theology in regarding all of this? Uh, you know, I mean, the, 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 so the yin and the yang is, is basically a, a heaven and an earth motif. Um, I, I wouldn't say that these ideas are, are necessarily informed by, by Eastern thought. Uh, you know, I, I have a cursory um, understanding of, of, you know, a, a number of, of faith traditions. I've, I've, you know, I've read the Bhagavad Gita and, and um, you know, the Dhammapada and uh, I, I'm, I'm reasonably well informed on it, but I, I, I haven't done any, any deep dives and I wouldn't say it's, it's necessarily um, uh, informed by it, other than these are coming from really timeless um, archetypes, you know, and, and the, the union of heaven and earth is, is really, you know, what we see on the, in the first chapter of Genesis and the last chapter of, of, of Revelation uh, of, you know, and, and in every other uh, culture, you know, in some form or another, you have um, duality, which is asking to be reunited in, in some form. And, and that's what the yin, yin and the yang uh, represent. It's a whole, but it's also it's also split. And there's you know some shared, uh, some appropriated uh, aspects one one uh, one from the other. Um, and and you know even the, the term religion, uh, you know the lig in, in religion is the same as ligament, or or even you know in some romance languages the word line has has a g in it. Um, it's it's really to to rebind that which was uh, rent asunder, um, and you know every religious um, concept is is trying to reconnect to to take duality and turn it back in into unity, um, and you know there's Richard Rohr again talks a lot about dualistic thinking and then you know unified thinking and how much of the world's problems are a, are a result of dualistic thinking and if we can all just kind of get over that and and. Uh, <laughs> You know, assume this unified thinking, then we'd all be better off for it. But th these ascend really at the highest level of of archetypes and and myths and and things like that. That um, you know, Richard Rohr's view on on myth is you know it's not things you know we use myth as a as a uh, stand in for falsehood. You know, truth versus versus myth. But he says you know a truth or a myth isn't something that's not true. It's something that's always true. And you know, you get to the level of 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 abstractions like. Uh, um, you know, duality and, and unity and, and things like that. These things are, are, are always true. And, uh, and I think, um, you know, by, by looking at, at how people have grappled uh, with these ideas through, through the ages, and even, you know, uh, seeing what's in scripture, there's, there's a lot of meaningful um, material that, uh, 
that can really help us make sense of these of these timeless uh, concepts. Where does exaltation fit in all of this? Oh yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah. Th this is kind of the the other the other portion of 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 this concept. So if exaltation, um, let's just let's just say that the exaltation is receiving everything that the Father has. Um, and and you know if exaltation if if exaltation from a, a typical LDS view is is living the life the type of of life that that God lives. Um, okay, yeah, good, good question. Where does this where does this fit in? Well, what I found kind of this was almost almost an afterthought, but I, it proved to be very significant. Um, is that so? You have the name of Christ, which is distributed to humanity, right? Take this upon yourself, become like me. But there are there are some instances. In fact, I, I think I identified four, where not the name of Christ, but the name of the Father is is referenced. Um, and what I found even more interesting with, is that it's always referenced in the same context. And that context is the name of the Father is given to the Son, and the Son glorifies that name. So, so you, you have this, uh, it's mainly in, in Third Nephi, but you have in the Son um, hath the Father glorified his name, the Father shall glorify his name in me. Um, but but you, have, you have this relationship between the Father and the Son that also involves a name. And, and uh, you know, I, I alluded to this uh, earlier that the model of atonement that we see between Christ and humanity mirrors and is a, is a, a prototype or, or an abstraction for, um, for the way that, that Jesus relates to his father in that uh, his father distributes his name to, uh, to Jesus. And, um, and as a consequence, you have Jesus being referred to as the father. Uh, and I and I think you know this has this has just a, a little side note here uh, about just Trinitarianism in the Book of Mormon. I know there's there's the the line of argument that like oh well Joseph Smith hadn't quite you know settled on his um, his his view of God at this time and was still modalistic at the time of the Book of Mormon. That's why you know we we see this uh, Trinitarian language in in the Book of Mormon. And you know I I think that that point is well taken. Um, but I think there's something else going on that um, that when when Christ is referred to as the father, again, in light of this this concept of, of transferring and of transferring names, there's what I call uh, intentional ambiguity. And, and and we see this in in King Benjamin's speech when it's, when it's like when you take yourself when you take upon yourself the name of Christ, you are known as the name of Christ and uh, you are known as Christ and. You know, there's a there's a, a cartoon that it's it's you know Saint Peter at the pearly gates, and somebody kind of shows up uh, you know in line, and he's looking at the paper, and and and, and Saint Peter asks, "Well, could it be under a different name, right?" And and that's that's the punchline. It's like, hey, you're not on the guest list of, of heaven. And I think what Benjamin gets at is like there is only one name on on the guest list of of heaven, and it is Christ, and and that's not you. It's like, hey, but the good news is, you can be known by this name. And, and so, you know, it's like, well, are you Christ or are you not? You know, I think there's a danger of, of being, uh, you know, blasphemous or, or, you know, the Antichrist or anything like that. But, but uh, I think that the idea of, of becoming, um, becoming known as Christ and referred to as Christ and then becoming a, a beneficiary of, of, of Christ's um, uh, uh, virtue is, is something that, uh, that then is articulated there by, by Benjamin. 
And, you know, relating to this, okay, well, well what does this mean about the, the father? Um, you know, when, when in, in the gospel of John, um, you know, Philip asks Jesus, it's like, well, Jesus, like, when are you going to show us the father? It's like, and, you know, and Jesus says, it's like all, all this time, uh, you know, I've been with you and, and, and you still don't get it. Uh, I think that that articulates the, the intentional ambiguity. It's like, you know, Jesus isn't saying like, well, there is no father besides me. It's just like, but, you know, uh, the father is revealed through me in the same way that, that Christ is to be revealed uh, to the world through, through his followers who take upon himself the name of Christ. That doesn't mean that they actually become Christ, but that, that means that, that they, that they do share some, some form of, of identity. And, and uh, you know, I think this is a, a, a very um, unique and, and, useful way to to try to make sense of of the, the trinity where you know um bart Ehrman explains that how you know in in how jesus became god of um of um how you know the the, the trinity the nicene creed the main concept there was like we cannot be polytheists you know the the europe coming out of out of paganism was just like we just cannot be polytheists so we have to make a way you know if christ wasn't god from the beginning or if he was the bottom line is we cannot be polythe polytheists, and, and a lot of the, the you know, the creedal um, Trinitarianism was born out of that impulse. Um, and I don't think we have to really fret in the same ways. We're not competing against paganism in the way that, that we were before. So I think a lot of the concerns can be sidestepped, and, and we can approach this from a, from a different view of by sharing identity and by having this intentional ambiguity between parties that share the same name, um, there is... Uh, you know, again, this, your your question was originally about exaltation, but but there is there is fluidity between the entities that are sharing the same name. First, in terms of salvation of 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 humans, but that that similar thing exists between the Father and the Son. And given that the Father and the Son is connected, or that Jesus is connected to both the Father on one end and humanity on the other, all sharing the same name, um, exaltation then then the channel towards exaltation. Uh, you know, again going squarely through Christ is, uh, is, is maybe conceptualized in this, in this sharing of name in that we take upon ourselves the name of Christ. Christ takes upon himself the name of the Father. Well, you know, you run out the timeline, and what does that mean about what name humans end up with? That it's the name of the Father. Well, I'll tell you, um, Casey, this is a very uh, original uh, thing that you have developed here. I find it very fascinating. Uh, first of all, uh, when is it going to be coming out in book form so I can review it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, someday. You know, this is this is a book that, that'll be written someday, maybe, uh, but not anytime soon. <laughs> well, plus, I'm not an academic. I, I don't have, you know, uh, right. uh, I'm kind of lacking in the skill set to try to put something together and also the resources of working with publishers uh, and editors. And you stuff. just make sure you send me a reader's copy. Maybe I'll write a nice blurb for the for the back of your book or something. <laughs> Just one more thing to bring up, and this is actually related to some of the, the previous interviews that, uh, uh, that you did. So, because um, uh, one of the things I identified in this, or, or my, my claim, or at least my, my hypothesis, is that this language is original. This take upon, mm -hmm. um, it doesn't show up in the Bible. This is not right. a biblical borrowing. Concepts are there. Concepts are definitely there. You know, and you have the name of Christ being used to cast out devils and, uh, you know, to believe on the name and things like that. But the take upon the name is that that phrase is, is pretty much unique to the Book of Mormon. If you do a, a literature review of, you know, pre-1830 text, you do, you can find, you know, take upon the name of the Lord, take upon, and also, you know, taking upon sins of, of people and, and things like that. 
but never together, and certainly not to the, the pervasive uh, and, and consistent way that the Book of Mormon presents it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think um, uh, you had uh, Colby Townsend on, on some, mm -hmm. some time ago, you know, yeah. doing some very careful work about, um, you know, the, the, the language and, and how the language is, is structured uh, in it. You know, I, I, I would love for, for somebody to then verify, you know, is this take upon language, does this show up in, in any other context? And I was also interested in the, the Jonathan uh, Neville uh, um, interview that he did, where he talks about, um, what was his name, uh, Jonathan um, Edwards. Edwards? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, after that, I actually, I'm just like, hey, I wonder if this take upon language shows up in, in Jonathan Edwards stuff. If, if, he's, if he's saying that, you know, the, the lexicon that Joe Smith had in his mind was, was largely absorbed from, from that. Uh, so you know, I I I found a quick um, uh, complete works of of Jonathan Edwards, downloaded it, started doing some some word search. I I, I can't find it as as far as I can tell that that this this concept is take upon, especially the way that it's used as as a reciprocal as as two sides of a coin. Um, I I do not think that it has any precedent prior to 1830. Um, hmm. And what I find even, and if there's any apologetic uh, approach to this, is that um, I do not believe that this was internalized by by Joseph Smith because it never shows up in any of his in any of his writings. And in fact, in, in all of uh, LDS uh, thought on on the atonement, you have these passages are frequently quoted. So if you do a word search, you'll find it. But but like putting it together that these are parts of a whole that then have incredibly broad implications for not only understanding the nature of God, but, but also, you know, uh, reaching the, the, the broadest archetypes of, of heaven and earth and, and, you know, up and down and, and uh, existence and non-existence. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to uh, yeah, overstate the case that, that I've, I've come across and identified something that's, that's pretty significant here, but um, I, nobody else seems to have noticed it. That's very interesting. Um, I love having the people on my on people on my program who have found things that nobody's found before. That seems to be a common theme with a lot of my guests. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on within Mormon theology. And I think you're one of those people who is exploring an avenue that and people haven't done. And so I think that's just so interesting, the kind of contribution that you are going to be making to um, you know, if we ever have a systematic theology of Mormonism, perhaps you will be one of those contributors to that. Uh, <laughs> and so, but, you know, I think this is, like I said, this is, this program is about talking to interesting people who have novel and unique ideas. I'm also glad that you're talking to my other, or, you know, watching my other programs, because you're, I think you're kind of catching this theme. And, uh, you know, I do appreciate it when people like watch my program. So thank you for watching. And yeah. uh, I just want to thank my audience for also watching this wonderful interview. I just want to remind you to like and subscribe and hit the notification button to be reminded when there will be a new episode. Um, we are going to get through this pandemic together, folks, and we will get through this and God bless and Godspeed. <laughs>